0: Welcome to the Doc Lounge podcast, Crazy Cases series. In this series, we will explore some of the most unusual and interesting cases medicine has ever seen. We will speak with providers of all specialties from all over the nation. We will hear firsthand accounts from symptoms to treatments to cures. So sit back, relax, and let's explore some crazy cases. Hello, everyone thank you guys for tuning in to the crazy cases series of our doc lounge podcast i am your host summer gilbert and my co-host today is our evp of business development here at pacific companies mr patrick Deeney. thanks patrick for joining me today it's my pleasure i'm happy to be here our guest today is dr ira ellis Dr. Ellis is board certified in Family Medicine, Obesity, Hospice, and Addiction, got a lot of qualifications there, and he graduated from the University of Tennessee, and he's still practicing in Tennessee to this day. Dr. Ellis is definitely a great guest for the show. He has a ton of cases, so many that it was hard to choose, so he let Patrick and I choose which one he would talk about today. So we chose one case that kind of led into another case, and we're so happy that we did. It's, when you listen, it's extremely different than you think it's gonna be. And a quick reminder, all our Crazy Cases episodes are HIPAA compliant, no patient names are shared. So with that being said, without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Ira Ellis. All right. Well, first of all, Dr. Ellis, thank you for joining us on the Doc Lounge Podcast. Thanks for having me. No problem. It's our pleasure. I'm really excited for this episode. So let's just jump right into it. Let's talk about these cases.
1: Okay. So uh, I was a full-time faculty member at a family medicine uh, program for several years, about 13 years. And um, we cover, we're the only residency program in a hospital system. Uh, I think it's like a 600-bed hospital. And we basically do everything except burns and transplants. So basically, we're internal medicine and family medicine and OB and everything. So just as that, that is a, as a basis. So I was probably a second or third-year faculty, maybe even fourth or fifth-year faculty. And one of my new third-year senior residents uh, had contacted me and said, you know, I'm, I'm up this afternoon for my first kind of senior responsibility. I'm kind of nervous, um, you know, uh, stay kind of close because I, I just don't really feel sure of myself. And I said, OK, that's fine. So I was hanging around the hospital that afternoon and I got a call from the from the third year. And he said, you know, we've got this lady down here to, to admit. And she it's just a weird situation. I'm not sure. I need you to come look at her. So, okay, that's fine. So, you know, three-minute walk downstairs. And so I said, okay, what's going on? So the senior resident said, okay, here's, here's the presentation. You know, we've got an African-American lady in her early 40s, um, has had some issues with recurrent pneumonia over the last month. She's gotten worse, and she's brought to the ER by her mother. Um, ER doctor saw her, thinks she needs to be admitted. Uh, but it, it just doesn't make sense. Okay, so I don't know if this is just someone who is in, you know, shock that they actually have to kind of be the boss now or if this is, you know, what's going on. So, okay. So I just go into the room with the residents and there's this really well-kept, thin but um, healthy-looking African-American lady laying in the bed, kind of resting. Her uh, mother was with her sitting at the bedside. She's probably mid-60s, very well-kept. Uh, pleasant I remember a very pleasant lady and I just you know asked hey what's what's been going on and the patient herself was more you know she would open her eyes and smile and say thanks and hello and yes but not really able to give a history so the mother said you know this is my daughter um, and she's been having issues with uh, pneumonia and she described that as She's been having issues with cough and shortness of breath and just not feeling well for a month. And she was diagnosed with pneumonia two to three weeks ago, did a course of antibiotics, maybe felt a little better, went back. They said, yeah, you probably need another course of antibiotics. Got another course of antibiotics and still wasn't doing very well. And this time they came to the the big hospital. I said, okay, does your daughter have any major health issues, any other issues? "Eh, She had her gallbladder out when she was in her early 20s. Um, for for gallstones but no otherwise she's healthy she's active She jogs she doesn't smoke doesn't drink she's married she has two children um, her husband's in the military and I think he was deployed at the time and the two children were in probably in school you know it's probably one in the afternoon they're probably at school and um, I said okay so we you know examined her and she was just kind of lethargic I mean nothing really stood out she didn't look you know she wasn't in respiratory distress, she was just kind of ill appearing, but you know nothing out of the ordinary. Her lung sounds were good, her heart sounds were good. She wasn't tachycardic, so I thought, yeah, hmm, this is the this is a strange pneumonia. This yeah. So we went and, we, and this is this is probably about two years before electronic medical records and, and electronic data was a standard. So we were still getting paper results and everything. Mm-hmm. So I went back and uh i said well let's pull up her labs let's look at her x rays let 's look at all this she had uh her blood work was essentially normal she did have a slight elevation in her white blood cell count' so maybe thirteen thousand you know nothing extraordinary uh, her chest x-ray was abnormal you know she did have this this infiltrate appearing um this abnormal you know opacification in her um Left lung, it looked like multi lobar, and it was read as multi lobar infiltrate by the radiologist uh, who overread the ER doctor's uh, reports. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I understand. This doesn't really look like a pneumonia, or, or well, it looks like a pneumonia, but doesn't doesn't make it's not classic. It's definitely not a classic pneumonia. So I thought, okay, well, hmm, how how are vital signs? Well, she's febrile, she's not tachycardic. Blood pressure's a little low, 88 over, say, 60, her uh, mean arterial pressure was right around 60, but she's thin, and, you know, in some uh, smaller frames, people, you see that. So, I thought, yeah, I'm not sure what's going on either. Is it pneumonia? Maybe. I don't know. You know, they'd ordered the blood cultures and, you know, everything, so she had been, she's in the process of being worked up. And so, I went and talked to the emergency room doctor, who's 20 years experience, and and I said, do you, do you think this could be anything else? Because, you know, nothing is impressive for pneumonia. She's got an abnormal chest x-ray. But, you know, I, I don't know that I would just say this is, it's an easy something to write down. But I just don't know. So he said, yeah, I just think, you know, she's probably got an atypical pneumonia. She's relatively young. You know, Okay, okay, okay. So I go back to talk to the, the mother. And, you know, we explained, okay, we're going to admit your daughter to the hospital. She may be here a day or two. We're going to get blood work. Obviously, if there's any decline in her respiratory status, she may need to have um, to be intubated. Or uh, I think we were using BiPAP a little more frequently back then. But, anyway, we may need to intervene. She gives permission to do whatever you have to do. And very religious kind of family, you know, we kind of believe whatever happens, happens. and You just do what you have to do. Okay, okay. So while we're having the conversation, the oxygen saturation alarm starts to go off. She's starting to desaturate. So we kind of do a little sternal rub, wake her up, she recovers. But then as soon as she kind of gets stuporous, that O2 set drops again. So I'm trying not to be the the main decision maker. I'm trying to have the third year kind of step in and do his duties um, as the senior And so I just looked at him and said, hey, what do you think we need to do here? You know, she's dropping in the low, well, mid 80s whenever she closes her eyes and tries to go to sleep. And he was like, you know, maybe we should just just intubate her. And I said, well, obviously, we we don't know what's going on. Number one, we don't know what's going on. Number two, we don't know what's going on. And so we can't predict what's going to happen next. So, yeah, I think the best course of action would be to just go ahead and intubate this lady. Her blood pressure is low. Not the worst I've ever seen, but yeah, th- this doesn't make sense. I don't know how to control the situation because I don't have a diagnosis. So we, get, you know, talked to the mother really quickly and said, "Listen, we're just going to go ahead and put your daughter on a ventilator and get this sorted out." Okay, okay. So the respiratory care team comes shuffling in, you know, and and um, and uh, the standard at our hospital for uh, to induction for a for a elective intubation was Versed, um, and so they were drawing up the verse and everything. And um, for some reason, the uh, residents uh, looked at the mother and said, now your daughter doesn't have any allergies. You know, you said she's healthy and doesn't have any problems. And they're like, she said, well, you know, when she had that surgery for her gallbladder, they told us not to ever use something with a B, benzos. She doesn't do good with benzos. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, well, all right, let's not use the verse, Ed. Um, So what other options do we have? So the resident, you know, the third year resident, he said, well, you know, we could use a paralytic. And I said, yeah, you could, but then the lady can't breathe. She's paralyzed. She's going to be anxious. She's going to be, uh, you know, as aware as she is now. Yeah. So, you know, it, oh, wow. you know, we don't really, you know, we don't really use paralytics like that. You could. Yeah. I said, yeah, you could, but that would be cruel and unusual punishment. So that's anything else. And they got, and so he said, well, uh, you know, and so this was when propofol was making this big, oh, you know, sure. it just kind of, yeah. And so they said, well, you know, we have this propofol stuff and it, you know, it, it does everything. It, 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 it uh, it's, it's an analgesic, it's an axiolytic, it's a, it's a paralytic essentially. So it's kind of the best of all the worlds we we're looking for here. But, um at that time, uh, the only people who could, could give an IV push of the propofol were uh, medical doctors. Uh, they, they wouldn't allow nurses to push. And even in the ICUs, if you were using it for uh, ventilated patients, uh, there was some kind of protocol where the critical care doctors had to be present. I, I don't know. But anyway, they said, all right, well, Dr. Ellis, you're the attending physician. You have to push the propofol to, you know, so we can get this intubation done. And I said, okay, that's fine. So we got everything hooked up, had our flushes ready, and like a tenth of a cc of propofol and just asystole. Oh, no. Immediate.
0: And oh, I'm boy. talking
1: about, I mean, asystole, and I just said, whoa. This, and, of course, I knew immediately what the diagnosis was. Y'all have any idea? I have no idea. No. Okay. So I knew immediately what it was and so of course you know so you got the mother sitting three feet away reading the newspapers you've got every medically trained person in the room's jaws hitting the floor and the residents eyes are bugging out of their head and i thought oh all right start cpr you start chest compressions just back get the bag going let's go and so I said, and we probably just need to go ahead and intubate her since, you know, Renee systole. So they're in the process of doing all that. I come out to the ER doctor and I said, I know what's wrong with her. And we need a pericardiosynthesis kit. She's mm-hmm. got tamponade. She's got tamponade. And that abnormal x-ray, that, that opacity on the left side is not, it's not an infiltrate. That's her heart. Uh-huh. And, and so that's the problem. She's short of breath. She's fatigued because her heart's not beating. Her blood pressure's low. And I just took away the little bit of blood pressure support that she had with my propofol. Oh, jeez! All right. So now you get into the whole uh, uh, pecking order and ego. <laughs> and, the, and the ER doctor said, no, you're wrong. And I was like, uh, well, okay. But there's only one way to find out. We need to do a pericardiosynthesis immediately. And he said, yeah, but you don't have those privileges. So there's not going to be a pericardiosynthesis performed and i said well unless you have another diagnosis that would explain why she would go into asystole instantly i think we should do one he said she's allergic to propofol it's an anaphylactic response to propofol and i said see the trick with that is is the anaphylactic reaction is usually your second exposure or third exposure she's never been exposed to propofol this is no i said now could it be a you know just just Total bad luck. Yeah, but no, I've never seen anybody have a, a reaction that is instantaneous. You know, this was instantaneous. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of looked at me for a second, kind of looked in the room. And of course, it sounds like it's 30 minutes, but it's like, you know, a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And he, yeah, he said, okay, You know, he said, hey, all right, give me a pair of cardiocentesis, right? So sure enough, they got four liters of fluid out of the pericardial sac before. Yeah. Just, just copious, copious amounts of pericardial uh, (laughs) uh, fluid from the pericardial So, um, and of course her heartbeat comes back instantly, sinus rhythm. Um, you know, we have her intubated and everything. Um, of course now we've got to figure out what's obviously what's going on. Now the four liters that they pulled off went into just a, just a non, you know, a, uh, it was not uh, aseptic technique, obviously. It was more of a rough kind of situation. So um, now it was, at that time, it was me, the two or three residents, the ER staff, and I think I had like four medical students, four, four third-year medical students who are doing a family medicine rotation who think they're going to be talking to people about diabetes and, and smoke, <laughs> smoking cessation. Yeah. yeah, and we're, basi- we're basically doing internal medicine, if not critical care, you know, so this was again about two in the afternoon. So obviously, you know, prioritize things, get the oxygen, get the blood pressure, get everything stabilized, get her up to an intensive care room, let's figure out what's going on. So um not a whole lot of no not a whole lot of more information after that. Um so we convened the next morning about 5 a.m., 6 a.m. So we reconvened the next morning from uh because we would around in the hospital in the morning, then we would go to our family medicine clinic um, so we reconvened that next morning and um, go to the intensive care unit and we have about a 24 bed intensive care unit and then we have like a 24 bed surgical intensive care unit and that kind of thing so anyway we go up and i now i've got my you know my little ducklings following me around here and the same for from the day from the from that afternoon before and we go up and we're going towards the room and uh, what year was this 2007 2008 so there's still a generation of what I call old-fashioned doctors at work they, 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 they're just there in the hospital they don't ever really exist outside the hospital and I saw um, this older guy he's probably he's still working today but he, he was probably 70 years old then real nice older guy he was a I think he was oncology originally but he was transitioned over to hospice or something but anyway real nice older guy real you know just anything i can do to help you at any time give me a call kind of guy so i see him and he's always he's one of these older generation guys that remembers everyone's name calls you you know he call me ira he's a good morning ira how are you how are you any good cases today that was his general kind of thing so he comes uh and he looks kind of like a character out of uh Uh, a norman rockwell painting he's real thin got the big you know the big adams apple pitchfork yeah yeah, well yeah he looked like he would have played baseball and basketball anything a tall lanky white guy would have done in the 40s (laughs) and 50s but again anyway so he's walking up and you know his whole body moves you know he swings his arms just real real character anyway so i see him and and uh I'm getting ready to say good morning, you know, and I'm getting ready to get my good morning. And he comes up and he literally stops and puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, you didn't do anything wrong. And I thought, that's odd. What yeah. are we talking about? What are we talking about here? And I said, uh, I'm sorry. And I, who knows? You know, Who knows what the punchline is going to be? Yeah. And I said, I'm sorry. And he said, yeah, this lady over here that y'all got in the hospital yesterday, you didn't do anything wrong. And I thought, why are, what are you, why are we talking about this lady? So come to find out, uh, he was on call that night, the, the night before and, uh, the fluid was sent and it was stage four breast cancer. Oh, wow. Whoa. It was, yep. So come, so what he had done 11 o'clock at night, I guess the pathology did their, you know, they call them the cold slides or just a quick look or whatever. The pathologist who was just like him, the old fashioned dude that doesn't really go home unless things are done. He saw something in the cytology that looked like breast cancer. He did some more tests, said, yeah, I think this is a breast cancer called the ICU. He said, hey, does this lady have any signs or symptoms of breast cancer? They go in. I guess they do a breast exam on the lady at midnight. They don't really feel anything, but they get a radiology tech to go up there, do an ultrasound, find a bump somewhere in her breast, mm. call, call the oncologist at like 30 in the morning. He comes in on call to do a consult at like 2.30 a.m. He looks at the picture, says, yes, this is, while not diagnostic, an ultrasound is not diagnostic, he said, yeah, this is consistent with a breast cancer. This, the fluid sample has uh, breast cancer cells. She's got stage four terminal breast cancer with oh. no other manifestations. Wow and he said here's what here's what would have happened. She would have died in her sleep, and family would have you know refused an autopsy because in in the in the bible belt i'm in the you know the traditional Bible belt most sure. people don't get autopsies you know they just say, well, it's God's will you know they passed on or or you or you know they call the the um medical examiner and if there's not a you know an extra hole somewhere mm-hmm. they're like yeah p e MI, you know, kind of thing. So he said, yeah, she was bound to die young. This is Uh not, he said, yeah. So she had stage four breast cancer, uh, the metastasis to the pericardium. He said, what most people would have done is they wouldn't have had a mother or someone to help them out like she did. And they would have just, just the blood pressure would have eventually dropped and they would have hypoperfused and had a heart attack and died. Wow. Yeah. So, so it was a stage four breast cancer presenting as atypical pneumonia. (laughs) Now, sad part of that is she never woke up. She had irreparable brain damage from the CPR event. um, And she was taken off life support about two days later and she passed away. Sad, but according to this guy, he said, listen, you know, I'm surprised because he had, you know, you know, he's, old fashioned. So he actually got called the residents on call. Of course, this was the talk of the town, this mm-hmm. whole event. So he had got the whole backstory from the ICU nurses. He had called the ER and talked to the respiratory therapist. And he said, I'm, I'm impressed that you, you would have even thought to have done the pericardiosynthesis And, and it's really funny because a thing I used to teach is, is when you do your ACLS protocols um, and you are looking at your, uh, um, um, reversible causes of base systole tamponade isn't that that's one of the t's yet in a traditional cpr situation or a ACLS situation how many times do we perform a pericardist before we stop yeah. the answer is rarely if mm-hmm. not if ever if ever um and i actually had read an article not long before that where johns hopkins was one of the last hospitals or teaching hospitals that their uh, CPR team protocol said you cannot stop with asystole until you've done a pericardiocentesis. Oh. Because it is more common than we think and it can literally be reversed. Yeah. So, anyway, weird case, crazy case. Now we segue into case two. So I get my. Pat on the back, you know, it's terrible. Uh, The medicine's a hard business and you did everything you could. Obviously it would have been a better situation to figure out what was going on before I pushed the propofol. Uh, But that, you know, he basically gave me a pep talk, uh, the the oncologist. And so then we went in and and did our examination. Uh, It was uh, back, back in those days, you know, there was no families allowed into the ICUs until certain visitation hours. So there was no family to talk to. And we were just kind of, man this is crazy and whatever so i'm in the room with the students her uh, her nurse i see nurse comes in the room and it's like hey this is the craziest thing and yeah this is so sad because again she was like 41 and i think her children were only like 12 and 13 or something terrible and her husband had to be called back he was deployed anyway so we're talking about all that and she said hey before y'all go come tell me how to treat this nosebleed. Oh, And I said, nosebleed. Okay, sure. I'm in the ICU. I'm a family medicine doctor. Let me treat, you know, severe epistaxis in the ICU. That's what I signed up for. Let's go. So, (laughs) so we go literally go two doors down and I have no idea who I said, is this my patient? You know, this may have actually been before HIPAA was a thing. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so, I, so, so I said is this my patient she said well actually she was admitted to your service uh, overnight so yeah you're, she's next probably on your list you just probably you know, haven't even paid attention and I said okay so what's happening and they said well you know she can't. she was admitted last night and, I, and we just got her in the room and everything and I noticed her nose is bleeding and I can't get it to really stop it's not terrible but I don't know what to do and I thought okay so going to the room me and my little trail of students here two again Family medicine rotation. They've already seen a, this other thing. So we go into the room and it's an overweight African-American uh, female, obviously just obtunded. Um, uh, she's just kind of um, lethargic, uh, kind of muttering as if she's having a conversation, but she's obviously not having a conversation with anybody that we can see. And... Uh, And she, sure enough, she's got some, you know, bloody discharge from her nose. And I thought, well, I've seen pretty, pretty bad nosebleeds and this isn't the worst. And I'm thinking this is just an ICU nurse who hasn't dealt with it or, or, but I'm thinking you don't do anything. You just kind of watch it. I don't, you know, and so I was like, okay, well, you know, what's again, what's the information here? Because we don't have, um, I don't think we, at that time we maybe could access labs, but I think we still had paper charts. Mm-hmm. So I said, let me see her chart. So they hand me a plastic chart with flip it open. And it's an empty plastic chart because the information hadn't been transferred from the ER yet. Oh. And I thought, well, this is not helpful. So what's the story? And she said, well, she's a frequent flyer for DKA. And uh, she usually comes in about once every month with a blood sugar in the 800 range. Um, we put her in, put her on, you know, some insulin and, you know, five or five, four or five hours later, it corrects, and then she eats, and you know, standard protocol usually out of the hospital in a day or two. And I think she had had some kind of falling out with uh, her prior PCP, so she was actually admitted. Um, I don't know what terminology y'all use. We call them unassigned or drop in. Sure. So we basically we had no real history on her other than other than what would have been in the hospital, which had to be requested for medical records, which hadn't arrived yet. Mm -hmm. so but so basically someone somewhere had admitted her for some problem probably dka as she was on an insulin drip okay so i thought okay well she's dka and it's she's probably acidotic and that's probably explains the confusion or the encephalopathy or whatever you want to call it and um i said okay that's fine and so we so i said well let's look at her extremities be sure we don't have anything going on so we did an exam on her and i was just like, just watch the nosebleed, you know, because I need to get her records before I make any big decisions. You know, I need to get her labs, all this. And so the nurse is like, okay. So one of the medical students says, hey, um, something about the, like the viscosity. They were like, this is really thin to be a nosebleed. This is like, almost like, like allergies. Like when you have real bad, um, you know, I think they call it um, like a runny nose, like choriza.
0: You know, oh, that's sure.
1: The old-fashioned medical term, you know, when everything's kind of congested. Yeah. She said, that looks she like she's just got nasal drip. And I said, yeah, I'm not sure. So and I asked the nurse, I said, now, is there anything in particular you're worried about? She said, well, I'm just afraid if she deteriorates and we need to intubate. You know, a lot of times with the nosebleeds, they'll get a clot, like in the pharynx, and that'll mm. occlude, and it gets to be a problem. And I was like, oh, okay, I didn't think of that. Well, let's look at her mouth. So we kind of got her mouth open and she was lethargic enough that we could do that without her biting down or anything. And sure enough, she had a clot forming on the soft palate, you know, Mm. where it just kind of accumulated. And I said, yeah, you're right. I said, she's got like a real loose kind of, you know, clot forming back here and she could very well aspirate. So what do y'all do when y'all see them? She said, well, it's not very um, scientific. We just basically put on gloves and kind of, fish it out with a four by four. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, well, well, I'll help you do that, you know? Um, so i get my gloves on and everything. And I said, you know, this, I said, you know, not that I'm the most manly man, but my hands were pretty big. And I said, you know, let me just have the four by four and I'll scrape this clot out. She's okay. So she has me the four by four and I put my, the four by four in and I can kind of get it, um, just in front of the uvula, you know, to kind of help this thing out. And as I pull, kind of, what uh, towards the top of her head and forward, my two fingers go through her hard palate. Oh my gosh! My, to the knuckle. Mm. So do you do you know this diagnosis? Uh, not a clue. I'm kind of afraid okay. to find out. <laughs> okay, so I knew what this was, and I said, "Of course." The nurse literally. Almost passed out. Yeah, <laughs> I almost passed out, but I, I was like, "Oh my God!" Now, of course, I jerked my hand back, and I was shocked at the fact that when it happened, there was no resistance mm. to my fingers. And the students, again, eyes blowed, What <laughs> in the world? And the, here's the interesting part: the lady was just, just as you know, just as kind of out of it as she had been. No other, whatever. And so I thought, I said, "I know what this is." And it's not good, but I've never seen it before. So I spun around, walked out. And of course, now it's a little bit later. It's around six in the morning. So some of the uh, private folks are kind of meandering to see their patients. And I saw an infectious, one of our wonderful infectious disease doctors, who's a Filipino uh, lady who trained, I think her and her cousin. She's related that we have two uh, uh, infectious disease doctors who are Filipino and, and they are literally like the best internal medicine, everything doctors that I've ever dealt with and very pleasant too, which is a rare combination. So, uh, she's walking up again, same kind of thing. Every day she remembers your name and Hey, how are you? How's everything going? How are the students? Any good cases? And I literally just pointed at her and I said, consult now, come here now. So she's like, hey, what? And so I walked out, put my hand on her shoulder and pushed her into the room. And I said, "This lady has mucormycosis. Do you know Which, what that is?" No.
0: Stumping us again.
1: Okay, so this is something again. It's it's an educational thing. So mucormycosis is a fungus that grows in the nasal passages of severely uncontrolled diabetics mm. because because it's slightly acidic and a lot of sugar, mm. and it is catastrophic. Obviously. Catastrophic because it just basically once it kicks in and starts to grow, it grows straight through your sinuses into the brain. Oh wow! Okay? So if she wasn't having a nosebleed, that was CSF fluid leaking out, and and I told the ID doctor because it, it is an obviously it's an infectious disease it's a fungus. I said this lady's got mucor. I need you to say yes, she does, because the next step is neurosurgery. Because all you can really do is cut the sinuses out oh wow it's, yeah it's catastrophic there's, it, It's literally like a, like a high velocity gunshot wound to the skull there's mm. no there's not a whole lot you can do. Shit. never seen it before uh, it's one of the complications one of the feared complications of type 2 diabetes so in, in, in family medicine, type 2 diabetes is you know one of our top things you, you if you spend any time reading outside of your standard you know, A1C goals and all this, you'll, you'll, you'll see that somewhere anyway. um And, and I think there were some cases that probably, I don't think it's new England journal, but I've, I'd actually seen a few cases where they would show just like a bruise on the hard palate. And that was the diagnosis. It, it wasn't a bruise. That was actual, the fungus, which oh appears to God. be green, green red. Yeah. So, So she comes in there again, very pleasant. She's not argumentative. And she says, well, you know, that's kind of uncommon. I haven't ever really seen that myself. What makes you think that? And then I said, okay, here's the lady's nose. You see this fluid? She said, yeah. I said, that's CSF. She said, how do you know? I said, medical school, basic stuff, nosebleed, you drip the stuff, you know, you drip it. And it's, it's a different consistency than blood. It's, it's thinner than water. You know, I, I can't remember the pictures, but they used to show you the difference between water, CSF, blood on a piece of paper, how they kind of spread out. I said, just look how thin that is. It's slightly bloody like CSF often is anyway. So then I said, now let's open her mouth. So we opened her mouth. Now the little area I had pushed had kind of dropped back down. So it just looked like that clot. And I said, here's what I did. I put my fingers in. And when I did, they went straight up into her sinuses. And she's like, no, 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 no. You <laughs> probably, she's like, no, no, no. You probably put your fingers into her, her posterior nasopharynx. And you're freaking out. She said, your fingers probably slip back to the base of the nose. Mm. And, and you've just never done that before. And I said, okay, well, what do you think is going on? So she's real gently kind of looking and touching. And sure enough, her finger slides straight up. Oh my she's gosh. Straight up and, and her eyes. And she's like, Oh my Lord. And I said, yeah. So she, again, real pleasant, real. She's like real, like she went to finishing school or something. You know, She's real polite. <laughs> real, so she, she takes her gloves off with perfect, you know, uh, like her, uh, her uh, PPE uh, uh, protocols, you know, so she sure. pulls the, she washes her hands for two minutes under the thing. And then she walks out and goes into crazy person mode. <laughs> So she, she starts calling. I don't know who she's calling. at six in the morning. And as she's trying to call somebody and she's hanging up and calling and hanging up, just so happens, here comes a neurosurgeon in the medical ICU, an older guy, near retirement. And he, again, nice guy. And he's walking up and, and he calls the infectious disease doctor's name. He's like, hey, Dr. So-and-so, how are you doing? And she's like, oh, my God, I'm so glad you're here. Come here, come here, come here. And, and now he's like, whoa, 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 what's happening? And he sees me with, like, all these medical students, and he sees her. And everybody's eyes are bulging out of their heads and everything. He's like, what's going on? What's going on? So she's talking so fast, he can't understand her. She does have a little accent, and blah, 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 blah. And he's, he looks at me, and he's like, what's happening? And I said, mucormycosis. He was like, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> and I said, yeah, 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 yeah. So he goes in the room, he looks, he said, yeah, this is Mucor. I've seen it once. It's terrible. I can't do anything for it. Um, so he got on the phone and called uh, the, our local kind of big fancy places Vanderbilt. Sure. It's, about, it's about two hours from here in the air. It's about 45 minutes. We also have the University of Memphis, uh, uh, University of Tennessee in Memphis, which is more, uh, which is uh, kind of at that time was more known for its transplants and burns that that's where they actually did stephen jobs pancreatic transplant over oh wow anyway anyway so he gets on the phone with vanderbilt and he's like you know he doesn't know anything other than that this woman's got mucor and um and he's you know doing his little neurosurgery chatter and secret code word password so they'll (laughs) trust each other whatever so he was like we need to get family uh, because basically this is terminal. Uh, he said, so he said, I, he said, I talked to my, you know, my buddies at Vanderbilt. And he said, basically what they do for this is they just go in. i trying to see if I can get my, my phone here without, it's kind of a profile shot. So he said, basically they'll just go in and cut everything from here down to the jaw and remove it. What? Yeah. Wow. So basically the only thing that's remaining is the posterior portion of the brain and the stem. Oh my but gosh. They, but they technically are alive. He said, but they have to have permission, but from the family, obviously, because that's, you know, a lot of people would say that that's not recoverable. But right. obviously there are other people, but there are other people that would say, no, a heartbeat's alive or whatever. And so, so he, he looked at the nurse and he said, you know, who's her, family of course again we've got an all we've got is a empty plastic you know um chart we've got nothing and uh now the morning shift is starting to come in for the nurses and uh you know so this nurse comes in she's got her kind of her bag and everything and she's just looking for the frequent flyers she's like oh i see miss smith is back with her DK, dka you know and we're, and we're like oh it's worse than that and they're like, oh what what is it you know and we're telling her and she's like oh that's terrible and, and and they said, oh, you know her? She said, yeah, yeah, I know her. And then, you know her family? Yeah. And they said, well, who's her, do you, any idea? Does she have a husband? And she's like, no, she's, a, she's got one daughter. And that's, that's it. That's all, you know, the only one I'm aware of. And I was like, well, do you know how to get in touch with her? And they're like, yeah, she's right next door in, in DKA.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: <laughs> yeah, intubated. Yeah, so her daughter was next door to her, uh, intubated with severe DKA, only family that we're aware of. So we don't have any – we can't deny her care at this point. So we arranged for a transfer to Vanderbilt for a whatever you call that surgery. And then I guess fortunate or unfortunate, depending on your perspective, she died on the helicopter pad trying to get Mm. her loaded into the helicopter.
0: Oh, wow, that
1: quick. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, mucormycosis, uh, not – what's the medical term? Not uncommon or not – not rare. Well, I don't know how to say that. It's it's common enough that I had seen cases or red cases, but probably the only case I'll ever see, maybe the only case the medical students will ever see. One of the only cases uh, the the uh, the other two specialists had seen, and, and one of those at, at near the end of his career. And I segued into that from a stage four breast cancer that presented as, you know, atypical pneumonia or not, yeah 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 wow how many of those residents hung on well (laughs) you kept uh, them all well well actually yeah they all you know they all graduated did good you know they did fine um we we tend to be a little bit more hospital uh intent or not intense but hospital busy compared to traditional family medicine programs which are tend to you know focus on the outpatient you know scenarios Sure. Uh, but uh, I guess that's the the pros or cons of being a, a, an isolated uh, residency program in, a, in such a busy facility. But yeah. that was a unique unique situation. I never, I don't think I ever had anything that close together. We that's actually, incredible. I think we, I think yeah, I think we actually published a case study on the mucor because I think that they were able to get a photograph of the hospital. Photography department or or whatever a v department was able to get a like a real high quality photo of that palette yeah um, yeah, yeah, so I think we actually published a case study with that, and then uh mucor is something that is again it's not uncommon but it is something that is seen in a very small percentage of folks who are recurrent d k a it can be type two or type one, but it's just in people that don't ever seem to um, get their, their pHs and their, and their sugars mm. stable. And so, okay, all of us right now, if we did a nasal, a deep nasal swab, could is there mucor in our sinuses? Probably. Yeah. But our, P, our pH is not 7.1 and our blood sugar is not 800. So we don't have the right fuel for it to grow. So I think it's one of those things where it's probably a ubiquitous thing. And they, and for whatever reason, you know, the compromised immune system, the pH, the sugar are a combination of all of, all three. But it is a, uh, I guess it's like a catastrophic complication of uncontrolled diabetes that, you know, with mental status change and DKA, it's something you have to consider.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing those cases with us. That sure. was this is, amazing. is always so
1: enlightening and terrifying. So <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: for sure. You're a great storyteller. So thank you.
1: Yeah, we got more. Sure. For, yeah, you got more for us.
0: Yeah, oh, we'll yeah, have I, to I, get I, you back
1: that's on. Just a t- tip, yeah, tip the doctor. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks we'll so much, Dr. Dr. Ellis. This is good to meet all you. All all take right, care. Have a good, good rest of your day. You too. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And a big thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast could not be possible. If you would like to be a guest, go to www.pacificcompanies.com. Thank you.